Guys, welcome to part two of the episode with Tina. Without further ado, let's get stuck in. I find it really interesting um, what you were just saying there about um, the, the approach to dating and like going out with an idea of what you want yeah. and being like, I am looking for specifics. And it just, it just reminded me of a Ben Shapiro, Joe Rogan podcast that I listened to quite recently. Obviously, and Ben Shapiro was talking about the problem with um, relationships today is guys and girls are going out just for the fun of going out. But like, once you sit down and say, look, I'm going to get married and I'm looking for marriage material, he felt that um, he was able to meet his wife Whereas Joe Rogan was of the opposite opinion, going like, how do you know what you want in a wife when you haven't experienced a woman? And it's sort of like, oh, okay. You um, know, it's really interesting that you mentioned that, Johnny, because I think it's akin to the, the process of accepting your illness too. Like we were talking about denial and all these other emotions earlier um, and taking the time out to really sort of understand and digest, so to speak, this illness and the changes that you have to make in your life. I think there's a lot of growing up that happens in that process. And so when we have a chronic illness, oftentimes a lot of us have had to grow up beyond our years. And that's why I say, you know, if you've done sort of the work around accepting your illness, um, a lot of times going out with that kind of mentality, sort of doing the work, understanding who it is that you are and understanding what it is that you might be looking for in a partner, whether that's marriage or a committed relationship or what have you, I think that's what's essential. I think where a lot of us get burned is seeking these fun times, which all of us want to do at a young age. I think it's, it's important to recognize that. But when we are actually sitting down to look for a relationship, with our condition, we have to sort of take a step back and ask ourselves what it is that we actually want. So I, I agree with you. I think that this takes a lot of maturity and a lot of introspection. Yeah. And I guess in that podcast, what uh, Ben Shapiro was getting at is getting the woman, selecting your partner based on what you think would matter as opposed to what fits right now. And I think that's a lot of the times what people end up in is a relationship that works in the moment. But actually, when you look at who you are as individuals, it's not very compatible further down the line, I think, is what he was getting at. Exactly. And so that's what kind of happened to me. Um, I think when I met my now husband, um, then boyfriend, you know, we were having dinner and I'm sitting there. I'm like, oh my God, this guy shares like the same values as me. I've never met someone like that. And I was like, oh my God, I could actually see us getting married down the line. But I was like freaking out because I was 22 and I was like not quite ready for a relationship. But it's funny, like at the same time, I'm recognizing it. I'm sitting at the dinner table and I'm like, Tina, take a step back for a second. He's talking about all the things that you want in a potential partner for the rest of your life. <laughs> and, and, and he's sitting right in front of you. Um, don't let this go. It was sort of that recognition. And I think, you know, bringing that awareness when you're in a situation like that, um, I could have easily run from that situation. Sometimes when we're young, we want to, because we just want to have fun. But I was like, no, 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 I need to get to know him. There's, there's something about him and we share a lot in common, but we're very different people at the same time. 
So I think it's really important to sit down and recognize um, if that partner or the person you're dating is not just in the now, do they have similar values to you, you know, for the future? And I think that's what a committed relationship or a marriage comes from. Yeah, I definitely agree with that. Uh, one of the things you mentioned uh, was obviously getting to know and understand and showing um, your partner introducing them to what your healthcare routine is and things like that and showing this is this is this is this is where i'm different um and with your culture uh having a chronic disease you mentioned is quite a taboo and it's, it can really impact on like the lifespan of that relationship which is no doubt a scary and almost turns it into an almost an anxiety issue probably uh, what how did you feel about introducing intimacy to your relationship, especially after having an ostomy? Like, how did that go for you? What was your concerns at the time? Were they alleviated immediately or was this something you had to work on? You know, um, I was sort of, I think my ostomy was definitely a concern, but uh, initially what had happened is um, he was my boyfriend at the time and I had just worked woken up from surgery from and I was just so thrilled to be alive and I remember him walking into the room and he kind of saw them changing my ostomy the nurse and the nurse's aide so I think he like it was like not even that I had to sort of introduce him to my ostomy he was kind of like wow that thing looks like snuff a lot that again. happened <laughs> Sesame Street. I'm like, okay. And I was like high on painkillers or whatever. So it was like, that process kind of got taken care of for me. But like, I mean, I think for me, the, the thing about intimacy was really about finding um, wraps or something to cover it up that felt comfortable, um, that looked cute. Um, so I actually, my hospital system introduced me to ostomy secrets. Um, I think the person who started the company was actually had surgery at my hospital. So, um, they introduced me to that and I bought a few of those and I think that helped tremendously with my confidence where I had the biggest issues with intimacy. I must be really honest with you. Um, more so than the ostomy was actually when I developed my first, um, rectovaginal fistula. Um, you can't see it. I mean, at least doctors can see it. I could feel it. And, um, for me, that was, um, it felt like it had violated sort of my female parts um, more than anything else. This ostomy was a diversion sort of from that perianal region into my abdomen, right? So it was a little bit different for me. Plus I could, you know, get around it with nice cute covers. For me, it wasn't as big of an issue to wrap my head around. But with the fistulas I had, um, the infections that I had, sort of the stool and mucus and blood passing through, it just felt like I was constantly being violated by this thing. And I think um, intimacy became really tough for me. Um, I was afraid oftentimes of having sex. Um, and What made you feel afraid? What was it that was scary? I, I was afraid of him getting infected or me getting infected further 
I was sort of afraid because I felt like I had a constant UTI. Most of the time it was because there was fecal bacteria getting into the region. Um, and was this fecal bacteria getting into your your vagina or was this? Yeah. Oh, wow. So that, that's, that is very significant. It was very significant. Erectovaginal fistula, that, I had five of them. Um, that was from at the age of 28. Um, and um, from 2011 to 2015, uh, that was my biggest struggle. And I think to date, um, having those rectovaginal fistulae was the biggest struggle I had with Crohn's. I don't think people talk about this enough with Crohn's disease. Um, and this is one of the topics that I talk about a lot um, you may have seen Dr. Nundi and I did a, a Facebook Live on it a couple months ago, and we tried, like, I try to talk about this as much as possible because there's a lot of people suffering with it, and it's extremely, extremely stigmatized, and you can understand why now. Men can have it in their private parts. Um, women certainly have it. It's more common than we think. It's, I believe, um, the latest estimates are like 30 to 50% of patients have fistulas of some kind. Perianal disease, um, you know, it's hitting your private parts. So it really feels like you've been violated by this disease, um, which we feel anyway. But it's like an order of magnitude worse um, when it's in your private parts, your sexual mm -hmm. And I think um, that was a really hard pill for me to swallow, um, knowing that I had these and at such a young age, and what did I sort of do to deserve this? And I felt like I couldn't be a good wife to my then, at that point, he had already been become my husband. And I was just like, what the hell? Like, I, like now I can't even properly have sex. There's no way you can put a wrap over that or a seal over that or anything like that. Um, a lot of my surgeries were unsuccessful with regards to that. And a lot of them, they put cetons in, which just leave, lays them flat open to drain more so that the infection can leave. Um, so it was a very, I, I, I don't even know if humbling is the right word. Um, it was a humbling experience, but it was an excruciating and debilitating experience um, for me personally, emotionally, and, uh, you know, with regards to intimacy, like, I just did not feel comfortable whatsoever. It was very hard. And um, how did you get through this? Like, what was, how was it rectified? And, and like, how did you as a person survive? Yeah. Um, so... We restarted, so let me backtrack. I had to have multiple surgeries to lay these open, put cetons in. But then on top of that, you know, at this point I had a J pouch and it, my fistulas were going from the anastomosis site, which is the site connecting the J pouch to the rectum, the rectal cuff, the teeny bit that's left, um, into the vaginal wall. And so what was going on was initially they were like, is this a surgical sort of issue? I got a second opinion. They were like, no, this looks like Crohn's. Um, you're sort of, you have some backflow into your ileum from the J pouch in terms of granulomas and ileitis. So this looks like Crohn's um, plus the fistulizing disease. 
So at that point, you know, I was recommended, let's divert you, um, meaning let's disconnect the J pouch, leave it in there. Um, in a lot of cases, it calms down and you'll get a temporary ileostomy. And I was like, oh, hallelujah. You know what I mean? After six years, like, I'm getting like my ostomy back and stuff. Anyway, um, so I was like, okay, just divert me. Uh, fine. Um, but then the, the disease kept recurring in the J pouch. I kept developing more and more fistulas in spite of it being disconnected. And they're like, what the heck? You're disconnected. Like I, there's no stool passing through. There's nothing in that region that should be causing inflammation other than the fact that your body just wants to create that or just wants to fight it. Um, so I just, I kept getting fistula after fistula after fistula in that region and finally, they were like, okay, we want to retry biologics on you. And you know how biologics are. They take time, like, to start working and to see if, especially in the case of fistula, it's breaking through your skin. So it's breaking through the mucosal lining into another organ. Um, can you imagine how much time it takes to repair that kind of inflammation? In some cases, it never gets repaired. That's why there's surgical options. So here I was retrying biologics after diversion surgery. Um, and Remicade I had, um, which is infliximab, I had anaphylactic shock too because it was reinduced. And some patients upon reinduction don't tolerate it because they have antibodies, which I clearly had. Humira didn't work. Um, then we tried Antibio, which was brand new at the time. It was 2014. And that didn't work. I developed two new fistulas while I was on that. And then they were like, okay, Tina, I think we need to take you in ASAP and have this J pouch removed. I was like, all right, just get rid of this thing. Just give me a permanent ileostomy. I'm done. Like, I'm so finished with this thing. So finally, um, this was the end of 2014. Um, they pulled out my J pouch, except it wasn't, done correctly in New York. Um, and I think this is the part that really broke the camel's back. Because it's a, a lot to bear. It wasn't done correctly. There were bits and pieces of J pouch and rectum left inside. And I thought I was done. You know, my J pouch has got these fistulas, they've sealed, they've tried to repair them. I thought I was done. No, Johnny, I was not. This was now January of 2015. I'm practically like living in the hospital, um, having surgery after surgery, trying to correct this thing. And I go to other hospitals in Cleveland and uh, to Mayo Clinic to get other opinions. And they basically told me, look, Tina, this has not been done correctly. I'm sorry. And um, Cleveland gave me an option to... Um, re-excise the area, take a flap from the back of my leg called the gracilis muscle flap, um, and fill the wound because I was left with a chronic rectal wound that was constantly bleeding um, after after my uh, J-pouch excision surgery. It's that is crazy. That's yeah. like, I, I don't understand how they could ethically have done that or like what the, the surgical team were <laughs> I don't doing. Know. That's why I said in the beginning of this conversation, whoever told me, like the surgeon, when he told me a J pouch excision is, 
is not a big deal, you know, it's a big deal. Um, it's a hard surgery, and it's a hard surgery to recover from, um, to have a proctectomy, your rectum fully taken out. Um, so anyway, um, the Mayo Clinic ended up doing my corrections, um, and they ended up re-excising the pouch and rectum, and they ended up uh, leaving a wound this big on the side of my bottom. <laughs> yeah, I'm not that big. So you can like imagine it was massive. I was suicidal at the time. I couldn't sit, I couldn't lay down. Um, I was having to inject hydrogen peroxide into the wound myself, um, which if you know anything about hydrogen peroxide, if you put it on a cut, it burns like all hell. So imagine putting that into your pelvic region um, with a drain. Um, so it was, that was a really tough summer for me, 2015. Um, and at the end of all of that, they told me that this thing is gonna close. We have a vacuum attached to it that's sucking the pressure out. It will close. But at the end of all that, they found another fistula. <laughs> and they were like, and I was complaining. I was like, I feel like I have another fistula. I have these UTI symptoms. So they took me in for an MRI. And they're like, you have a hole in the vaginal wall, but there's no rectum. I'm like, what? And the GI doctor there was like, I've seen this a couple times before where the disease is trying to continue even without the organs there. And he's like, I'm going to put you in a clinical trial. I don't know how he got me in. I that really, is crazy. I really have no idea how he got me in but he got me into the Stellara clinical trial in 2015. <laughs> and that closed my last fistula. Thank God, it took a while, like six months, but, and it was a hellish recovery. But come 2016, I was like, oh my God, this is what remission looks like. I've never seen this before. <laughs> that is a journey. It was awful. And I've been on Stellara since with doses tweaked, flare-ups in between. And I've had multiple diagnoses since then. Um, but that's that's how I dealt with those fish loss. <laughs> Long story. Well, I just can't believe that. Um, I mean, it, that's, that's Crohn's disease, I guess. But uh, I just can't believe that even after protectomy and nothing there, a fish... Did you, yeah. It's it's like the body is a weird and occasionally wonderful place. That is really weird. Um, I'm like, leave it to me to have some like phantom fistulas show up out of nowhere. It was um, honestly like I don't know how I survived that. And what you said earlier um, about realizing and recognizing how strong you are through some of these battles, um, it's definitely there. I mean, this this is something that can totally break your back. Um, but if you come out of it, you come out of it stronger. And I think this is what drives my advocacy work, Johnny, to be completely honest with you, is I don't want people going through what I went through. And Yeah, no, definitely. And it's, you know, just listening to that story, it has taken so much strength to get through that. And I think I think sometimes though you need to walk that path just to find out who you are. Yeah. Um, but like, how did that affect things like you? Like uh, some of the things we I talked about with Nilanjan was uh, fertility and fecundancy. 
was yeah. that a discussion with you? Because you're, you know, you're you're a young woman. Yeah. Um, family planning is possibly on the horizon for yourself. Yeah. Um, so it's a big, it's a big concern, I'm assuming. Yeah, you know, and that goes back again to that whole concept of marriage and fitness because it's fitness to reproduce too. So that was one of the conversations that came up early on um, between on and the me is, do we want kids? And, you know, he kept telling me, I'm not super interested and I'm not sure I want to put you through that. And I think that has only become more vehement in the last few years where he's like, I'm not really interested right now, but perhaps the conversation will be, we can perhaps adopt down the line. And that's something we've talked about many times. Um, my doctors have recommended against um, pregnancy for me. I think for many women with IBD, um, some of the AGA recommendations are stay on your biologic, um, work with maternal fetal medicine, work with your OBGYN and colorectal surgery and GI teams together, sort of multidisciplinary care. Um, and, you know, decide on a course of action. I've had friends get pregnant with J pouches, with ostomies, et cetera. But given all the scar tissue that I have, um, the extent of the surgeries I've had, um, my doctors here in New York and at Mayo Clinic feel pretty strongly about um, me not getting pregnant. And, uh, you know, we've sat down, we've had this conversation many times uh, over the last five or six years where it's been like, you know what, Tina, initially when I had the J pouch, even when I initially got the J, uh, the ostomy back, my OBGYN, my doctors were like, you know, this could be a possibility. But ever since what happened um, with the J pouch excision, the wound back and um, significant scarring and pelvic floor dysfunction um, and all these fistulas, I've basically been told, I had a doctor tell me a year and a half ago, um, and he's a fertility specialist. He was like, you know, um, Tina, could you realistically get pregnant? Yes. Um, would I advise it? No. And I said, why is that? And he's like, I'm going to have to go in there and possibly have to slash your bowel to get to your baby. And I don't want to have to do that. Um, there's a lot of scarring in there. And it's a really tough subject to talk about. And I think actually, Johnny, this is the first time I'm talking about this openly. So thank you. Um, it's a really tough subject for me because, you know, after all the fistulas I've had, they sort of take your womanhood from you. And I've never really been particularly keen on having children. I always thought, yeah, maybe down the line, down the line, down the line. And now we are down the line. And I'm like, okay, <laughs> you know, like that sort of situation. And I, I think it was more of an avoidance thing. But when you hear from your doctor, I'm not recommending this. It's almost taking away your ability to do what should be a God-given right um, being a woman. Um, so 
I think that was really hard for me to hear. It sort of put a stamp or a seal on it, a finality to it that perhaps I was avoiding. Definitely, like it's, it's it is so hard whenever a biological truth is essentially removed yeah. uh, from you, and you know, and, and the biological truth of woman is the ability to reproduce or carry it, carry a, a fetus to term. Um, and that's such a, yeah, it's, it, again, I struggle, it's struggling for words to describe that situation. Like I'm, I'm, I'm fortunate not to have had that situation within, within my life, but it's, it's one of those, I don't think you can actually put your finger on it unless it's actually happened to you. Um, like I, I know people that are go, going through IVF having had difficulty or the inability because of their sexual preference is the wrong word, but because they're, they are in a same sex relationship yeah. or they're in a relationship where they're having difficulties for whatever reason to, to produce naturally. And, you know, the partner is having miscarriages or the, the baby isn't taking and things like that. And, and dealing with those situations is difficult as it is, but to be told there's no cho no chance yeah. before you've even entertained the discussion almost is, it's gotta be like, how was that journey for you? It was hard. Um... You know, I think it would have been harder if I was hell-bent on having children, um, which I was not. Um, but I also think at times that I felt guilty taking that away from my husband, um, that it was my fault. But at the same time, he reassures me that he was not really crazy about the idea and that adoption is still an option, um, which I know it is. Um, so it's it's one of those things where it's like this disease itself is so isolating um as it is now seeing all my friends around me having kids even in the ibd population it it feels even more isolating honestly mm -hmm. um given that you know i'm an aunt and all those things and have good relationships with my friends and their children um do I feel left out? Yeah. You know, it's, 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 it's also like, am I afraid that I won't have the experience of motherhood in my life? Yeah. Um, you know, I'm the type of person who likes to experience everything at least once. So these are sort of the things that are on the table for me. Um, experience wise is, uh, this, this is something that, you know, I always thought I would eventually do. And being advised by your doctors otherwise is, feels like, okay, this disease didn't just violate you in so many different ways. Now it's taking away your God-given right to. So it's, you know, in a lot of ways, I felt um, <laughs> disempowered but also disemboweled by this disease um pun intended um but also i've i felt like you know i've had to sort of create an identity for myself outside of these things so i am still a woman 
and I am still proud to be a woman um, as an advocate, as a wife, as a good friend to so many of my friends, as a good family member. And I think we have to remember those things. Our society sort of envelops the role of a woman as you know, somebody who gives birth and I, you know, you hear able-bodied women talking about this all the time, actresses and stuff who've chosen not to give birth. And it's almost like, you know, a stamps put on them that they're childless. Um, but the, the reality is that choice can be liberating too. And I think it should be somebody's choice. But when that choice gets taken away from you because of an illness, I think that's the hardest part to digest. Yeah, and like I've, it's, it did, like, bearing children is an amazing aspect of womanhood, but yeah. it's not the only aspect. And like, I, like I was saying last week about talk, we were talking about this obviously, and uh, one of the things that I was talking about was how amazing women are, and that every person that is alive today comes from a woman. And that that process is it is amazing, but it's not the only aspect about being a woman. And it's you know it's like saying that the only thing a man is is, is an erect penis. Like there's more to being a man, there's more to being a woman than our reproductive organs. Okay. And um, I think that's something to really allow people to to think about and to understand, particularly. You know, I mean, it's one thing to make a career decision. It's another thing, like you said, to have it removed due to disease. Yeah. Um, and I, I, I just, for you to, to be able to sit here now and discuss that just shows how mentally strong you are. I mean, I've, I've got my views on IVF, and it's not because... I don't believe that it's a process. I don't believe it's not because I don't believe in the process, but because there's there's an element where you can't deny there is some form of structure within the human within a human for the yeah. want to biologically reproduce their own. There's, there's some form of chemical drive there um, that exists, and if you're not able to fulfil that. I, I, you know, it, it must be one of the most frustrating things, difficult things to to come to terms with. Like I've got family members that I don't know if they won't be discussing this, but I've got family members that they they haven't been able to do that, and they've had to watch the other family members have successfully reproduced and have families and babies of their own, and actually watch those babies have their own babies. And it's like, how do they feel? And like, as much as those children interact in their lives and bring their babies to their lives and include them as much as possible, you know, there's an element where you're still sat there going, but they're not, they're not mine. And exactly. it's like, I can't, I can't sit there. I can't comprehend where that puts them because in my head as well, I'm always like, as you mentioned, adoption. I think adoption is an amazing um opportunity for both people for 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 the parents and the adopted child because there are and I, I don't I don't want to feel like I'm speaking out of turn but there is there isn't a population problem in the world if that makes any sense but there is a problem with child abuse 
and unwanted children. And I think the ability to adopt is again, it's 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 for me, it's like a selfless act, as horrible as uh, not being able to biologically reproduce. There's an opportunity to do something great and amazing other than that, which I think is for me, it's a heartwarming aspect, but then I haven't had to go through your journey and it's such a such a difficult journey. Yeah. No, I'm I'm completely with you. I think, you know, when I've talked to family um and friends about it, you know, I've had friends literally tell me, Tina, like you can't not have a child. You and Anand would make amazing parents and bring amazing people into the world. And that's heartwarming to hear, but at the same time, it feels like a huge loss, you know? Um, it doesn't make it feel any better. Yeah, and then there's times when, you know, we talk about adoption with family and they're like, well, you should just have at least one of your own. And, you know, I've sat down, I've spoken to reproductive endocrinologists and whatnot. Um, they can certainly pull some eggs. We have talked about it. It's expensive to do you know um, in this country it's done without health insurance it's in the you know to have somebody else carry your egg it, it's on the order of a hundred thousand um, dollars to carry your egg and sperm like uh, the gonad um, it's it's on the order of a hundred thousand dollars so and I think that's that's a, it's not easy to do that IVF, you know, I've had um, friends go through IVF successfully. Sometimes it's taken three or four years and it's painstaking for them because, again, it feels like a flaw that they can't get pregnant. Um, for me, th that option's sort of just out of the window, <laughs> period, to even try something like that. But, you know, it is there is some hope in the sense that I could you know, potentially go the route of, you know, have some like a surrogate mother, like a surrogate, um, uh, you know, person who could get pregnant for me. But the, the issue is, of course, the money involved. But on top of that, it's this disease is running in my family. And I know doctors say, in general, you know, the percentages of it passing along are low. And this is the other reason that my doctors have sort of warned me. Um, for the typical IBD patient who may have had like one surgery or two surgeries or, you know, has a J pouch or ostomy or even never had surgery, a lot of times they will encourage them to get pregnant. Given my history of so many surgeries and scar tissue and damage to reproductive organs in the process and scarring there, um, combined with the fact that I have a significant family history that they don't quite understand how it's this aggressive in my family um, coming from my background, you know, th that coupled with my aggressive history is, you know, it's a scary idea to wrap your head around and be like, okay, perhaps I can pull a few eggs, but do I want my child to have the kind of suffering that my father and I shared? Um, yes, we've made a lot of strides. There's been a lot of improvement. I probably would not be alive had this happened to me five years earlier or 10 years earlier, as you know, we saw with my dad's case. But the point that I'm making here is 
there's, I'm getting hit with a double whammy, you know? Um, you know, I'm getting hit from different angles. And so it's like one of those decisions that, okay, Tina, like, do you want to bring a child into this world and have them suffer the way that you have? I, I can't do that. I'd rather adopt. Yeah, no, I totally, I get, I get, um, I guess we're talking about genetics really there and sort of, um, there's there's elements of epigenetics where you can cause genes to express maybe or or retard uh, depending on how or certain aspects you amplify within your life. Um, but yeah, I guess at a certain degree, the, the the genetic side of things, like you're talking about your family history there, and obviously usually they're pretty confident that an IBD, the gene of IBD, whatever or the gene that causes IBD to express, it's a very low risk usually. But I guess if you're looking at your family history and you've got several members of your family and it seems to be a hereditary link by without, well, more confirming or agreeing with your synopsis is that, yeah, you probably are right. That is this, is that going to reinforce it? And because of the level of severity, is that more, or is that child going to be more predisposed and it's, it's such a, like, I've never really thought of it from that perspective. I've always thought of it from a perspective of, well, it's low risk. The chances of it being expressed in your offspring is, for, is so low that it's not really even discussed in most cases. But I guess, yeah, if you if it is hereditary and, and there's two, three, four generations, are you promote, is that gene get somehow yeah. being promoted within that gene pool as, as an expressed gene? Exactly. And when some of the top doc doctors in the world tell you that, it really makes you start thinking because they're like, we don't really see this at so intensely in South Asian populations. And then the family history, the genetics, we don't really have quite a handle yet on the genetics. What we do know is it's generally a low risk, yet your family seems to be defying those odds. Uh, probably not. You know, type that's the kind of sort of rationale I've gotten around this is perhaps, you know, this is not something you pursue. And even on my husband's side, to be completely honest, there are some autoimmune conditions and issues. So, you know, I, that's the other thing that's sort of playing into this, um, especially for my husband. So he's like, you know, it's very easy for that for this to develop given, you know, the autoimmune stuff on my side of family too. So there's, there's been a lot of talk, a lot of back and forth um, between us and uh, we've definitely done our research and homework. And I've even spoken to moms, um, a few of my friends who are moms um, with IBD, um, every time their child has some kind of stomach virus or anything, they're like, is it Crohn's? <laughs> you know what I mean? It's one of those fears that some of them have. And I'm the same. I'm exactly the same. Like both both of my kids have been like, have they got? And every time there's this, there's a a wet nappy or a, yeah. ooh, I'm feeling crampy. I'm like, oh god, please don't have what I got. Yeah, it's just I don't think for me. I given the extent of the risk um, in my family and the way it runs. I, I don't think I could live with myself, honestly. Like I, you know, to have to see what my mom had to do for me in terms of caregiving, 
being somebody who's gone through as much as I have and gone through so much sickness, I don't think I could do half as much as she did for me, for my child in terms of helping them through this. And that would break my heart too. So there's there's been a lot of sort of thought around this, you know, um, introspection around this, if you will, um, with regards to pursuing this. And I think it has to be an individual decision. A lot of women are scared. Honestly, if I had half the number of surgeries I had, if I had just had an ostomy and not gone through the J-Pouch route, been excised, this would not even be a conversation today. I would have gone through with it, you know? Um, I think that there's a lot of complicating factors in my case, and um, that makes my decision a little bit more difficult than perhaps the average woman with IBD. So I always encourage women to do their research, to do their homework, and if this is something they really want, to make it happen. And, you know, I'm really glad that you're talking about this, Johnny. It really needs to be talked about more because in our community, there's a lot of talk about becoming a mom um, and encouragement to become a mom, which is extremely, extremely important. I can't emphasize that enough. But I think there has to be a space for the women who are grieving because they can't. Um, and I think that's what I would like to see more of, and that's what I would like to create more of. Um, a space for women who can tell themselves and tell the people around them that it's okay to not have a child because of this condition. So I would like to see a little bit more of that um, because the automatic assumption is you're a woman, you're gonna have a child. It's not that way this day and age, and women don't have to be shamed for it or I'm sorry that you can't have a child. It just is what it is, you know, and um, it's okay. There's other ways around this if you want. And there's, if you don't want, there's ways not to go around it, to, to, to just, you know, be. And I think it's okay, whatever you decide. Yeah, and I think, again, it's, it's kind of a wider picture again of almost the elements of what patient advocacy and particularly the IBD community does in, in its mainstay, but provide, like, obviously it's a, it's a slight caveat, but it is just allowing people that are on a slightly different journey just to realize that actually, you know, it's not, it's not the end. It's not, you know, this is, this is again, it's, it's creating normal out of abnormal situations and making it a sort of a more of a mainstream discussion, making you feel less of a, an alien, so to speak. Exactly. And welcomed into the community. You know, um, I think that this is a topic that's very much on the minds of the 20 something year olds or early 20 something year olds or even teens being diagnosed mm. with this. That we need to create a space for those women who may not want to or can't. One, um, of, my, one of my thoughts about the thing is, is allowing us to create a space, I think, is, is great. And I think it's right and proper to have somewhere where you feel comfortable to express yourself and discuss things that are bothering you, where you feel people will understand. One of the um, one of my thoughts though, as well is, and it's something I, I try to do with this podcast, is making, making it a mainstream discussion. It's like sometimes 
you, you, we can feel that we're doing stuff within a small group, but in actuality, what we want in this situation is for the greater society to potentially accept these people for something that isn't actually a fault of their own. And even if it's even if it is a decision that you've that you've made that you don't want to have children, you shouldn't be. It doesn't necessarily mean that you're less of like. Do you know what I mean? It's it's how do we make the wider society more accepting of a woman's either choosing to or not being able to have children uh, and i feel that across the board within sort of ibd it's making people accept yeah. the situation that people find themselves in more but i don't know like how what's your thoughts how do you how do we achieve that i think more people need to speak up and you know i'll be really honest with you johnny i've had an a blog post um sitting in my drafts for <laughs> the better part of a year and a half um, on exactly this topic. So <laughs> thank you for getting me to talk about it. Um, there was a huge push, I think, two years ago um, to encourage women. And, you know, I sort of got all spruced up with that. And I definitely do encourage women. But I've also seen sort of some of the backlash from that, you know, where women will reach out to me and ask me my thoughts and I'll tell them, well, if this is something that you really want, um, please do pursue it. But if this is something you're really scared about, you know, I suggest seeking, you know, therapy, um, talking about it more closely with your family um, and your friends, your husband or wife or partner, whomever, um, and really deciding what's best for you. You can't talk about this topic enough if it's really on your mind a lot. And on top of that, I think we need more advocates speaking about it and creating that space. And that's been on my horizon for some time now. It's working up the courage to make yourself vulnerable enough to expose, okay, I felt like less of a woman because of the fistulas that I dealt with. I also feel like less of a woman because of this. And here it is, I'm presenting it to you on a silver platter. It's, it's a very hard thing to do. And I think my first year of advocacy, um, I would really panic a lot before hitting the publish button on a lot of my blog posts and my husband would have to do it. And I think this is gonna be one of those situations where I'm going to have to start talking about it. Others will have to start talking about it. And it's a very, very sensitive subject. Yeah. And it's, I think it's, I, yeah, to, 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 to stand up and be one of the first people to stand up is always going to be a challenge. And I, like hats off to you for, you know, even attempting to, to, to be the first to stand is, is an amazing feet um and it's just like yeah sticking your head up it's such so scary um particularly in the, in the but what this is the thing that i don't understand for womanhood is um god i don't even know how to, how to approach this without sounding like an absolute imbecile but in in a, in a world what i find strange in a world where a man can uh can then change sex to be a woman and be celebrated as always being a woman and being celebrated for the entirety of what a woman like 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 
awesomely celebrated as a woman, irrespective of having spent 30 years as a, as a man. And I'm not condoning that as in, like, I'm not saying that that's wrong, but in the same vein, there are women that have gone through issues that you have gone through and feel shamed by the same society for not being a complete woman. I, it's like one of those platitudes where I'm like going, this is really interesting. Yeah, no, there's definitely double standards around this. And I think um, it's it's one of those things where, you know, we've really broken the surface on a lot of topics. I had to do this with perianal fistulizing disease. I had to do this with pelvic floor dysfunction. And um, I feel like this is something that's going to have to be done with regards to this as well. Um, the shame's got to go. It, it It's... It's a woman's body, it's a woman's choice, yes, but sometimes we're not given that choice. And sometimes we don't have that privilege or that luxury and that's okay. As long as we're okay with it, as long as we're doing the mental work around it um, to get the help that we need to make sure that we feel comfortable with this, which is something I've been doing for years um, and that's why I've worked up the courage. When you asked me and told me, you know, this topic, I was like, all right, I'm going to be ready for it. Um, just mentally um, to talk about this. I think it's so, so important, you know, to be able to say again, like I was talking to you about earlier, um, this is my boundary. This is where I draw the line. I have to choose myself. I have to choose my life and I have to choose my quality of life here. Um, do I want children? Do I want to give a child an amazing life? Sure. Um, but I have to consider, am I going to be able to take care of that child? Am I going to be able to handle, you know, some of the GI symptoms the child could have, um, like just normal everyday type GI symptoms? Am I going to be able to do that? And I think this takes a lot of reality, a lot of maturity, a lot of inspection to sort of come up and say, look, Tina, this is what you can handle. This is what you can't handle. You're a big girl now. You can make those decisions. So that's kind of where I am right now. And part of owning my Crohn's is, you know, sharing that. And um, it's owning the fact that my body has its flaws, but I'm okay with them. And you know what? We can still be beautiful. We can still live full lives. We can still have full experiences in our lives in spite of having these extremely debilitating diseases, inflammatory bowel disease. So I think that's really what keeps me going. And that's what really drives me is making sure that people can recognize that and find that with that, that space within them to create that space for themselves. Cause you have to do it for yourself before you can do it for others. And that's kind of where I am right now. So. Yeah. And that makes complete sense. And I think um, one of the, one of the aspects of that is it takes such mental strength to sort of get there. Um, and I just wonder like, you know, you've, you've had some significant things happening within this journey or within your history I'm just wondering, like, you've you've shown a resolute amount of mental strength and adaptability to get through all of this. I'm just wondering how you feel you were supported and what sort of things helped you in terms of, of your mental health 
Absolutely. Um, Johnny, I just have to tell you, I have to jump in a little bit because I have another call. Um, but um, just quickly to make sure that I can go through some of the mental health pieces. I think something that's really, really helped me a lot is attending support groups. My mom actually put me in support groups within the hospital system um, when I had my first surgery. And I think that even though I couldn't speak up in a lot of those support groups at the time, I was taking in what other people were telling me. They didn't have to have the same exact story or experience or what have you. Um, but hearing that there were other people like me definitely helped me. And the other thing that my mom did for me is she put me in therapy. Um, those two things have been instrumental for me. Um, working with a psychotherapist, um, attending support groups. I've led support groups, um, a women's support group. I've led um, sort of a co-ed group at times. Um, and I started a teen um, support group here in New York City. Uh, so I've really tried to first work on myself, um, create that space for myself to sort of heal and then help push those healing vibes out into the community um, as a volunteer for the Crohn's and Colitis Foundation. And now, you know, through my advocacy work is try to support the community through some of the work uh, that I do, whether it's writing, whether it's um, like blogging or, you know, speaking on a podcast like yours, which is brilliant. Um, I, you know, being able to do these kinds of things, um, speaking at conferences, bringing people knowledge, education, is really something that helps my mental health every day. It makes me feel like if I have survived all of this, you know, I have to give back to the world. You know, the community has given me so much, allowed me to survive, given me a space. Um, I want to give back. I want to make sort of the lemonade out of the lemons that I've been given. So that's kind of my sort of perspective on mental health and how I've sort of handled my journey. That's, that's beautiful. Um, I've reached a part of the show where we're pretty much at the end. Um, <laughs> yeah. And I just, I, I robbed it off Lewis Howes. I call it the three truths. And essentially it's the end of the world or the end of your time in this world everything you've ever created, everything you've ever done has disappeared for whatever reason. And you only have the opportunity to leave three truths or three life lessons that you want the world to learn. And so Tina, what would your three truths be? That's a really good question. <laughs> I think my um, three truths would be um, that there's always hope um sometimes we have to create that hope but that there's always hope the second thing is find support however you can um not just to prop yourself up but to help others both ways um helps you in the end and helps other people in the end and i would say the third thing is put out love put out positivity um the world needs a lot more of it. Uh, we see so much negativity uh, today's day and age and in general. 
I think we need a lot more love, hope, positivity, and support in this world. So I would say those would be my three truths. I'd start with hope, then move to support, and then pushing out love and healing into the world. I think they're, they're great. You know, there's nothing more uh, important in the world than having some hope, being positive. Everyone could always do with a little bit more positivity. And yeah, that, that unilateral support from giving and receiving, brilliant. And um, I'd just like to take a moment, Tina, just to appreciate you like for coming onto the podcast and having such an honest chat um, about these issues. It's so important to have a voice like yours out there and everything that you're doing within Own Your Crones, you know, including the, the major topics that you just talked about there, like empowering uh, womanhood from all walks and all experiences. I think that's such an admirable thing. So thank you so much for, and especially living by your three truths, you know, bringing hope, providing support and receiving your support in both ways. And just adding that little bit of positivity. I really can't thank you enough. Thank you so much, Johnny. It's truly an honor to be able to share my story through you. Um, thank you for the work that you do. Um, I can't wait to hear the podcast. <laughs> No, it's my pleasure. I'm just going to close down from the guys now. Okay, guys, that concludes our show tonight. Thank you so much for joining in, and we will catch you on the next one. See you all soon. Bye for now. <laughs>